Hi, welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm April Fallon. Enjoy this episode. Welcome to Adoption Now, your adoption show. I'm your host, April Fallon. I am the adoptive mother of four children. I am passionate about learning more about adoption. We tell adoption stories from the perspective of the adoptee, adoptive parent, and birth parent. Thank you to everyone who is helping make this show possible with your listenership and giving to our nonprofit. Don't forget to subscribe to get the latest episode released. Okay, today our guest is an adoptee. She is a Gulf Coast writer and has written an award-winning book called Fixing the Fates. She's also a fellow podcast host. She believes in the redemptive value of telling or writing your own story. Diane Dewey, welcome to the show. Thanks so much, April. Great to be with you. Diane, what does Gulf Coast writer mean? (laughs) It means you're a writer who lives on the Gulf Coast of Florida, as it sounds. (laughs) So you live in Florida. How did you hear about Adoption Now? Um, well, I was very aware of Adoption Now when I was when my when my book was released, and I started looking at you know the constellation of um, organizations that do work in this area of communicating about adoption from different perspectives and points of view. So I was really glad to come across yours, Adoption Now. And I just commend you, not just personally, but on your work and um, bringing together these different perspectives. Oh, thank you so much. I love that you said constellation because often we call it the triad and the triad is exactly what I said in the beginning of the show. It's the adoptive parent, the adoptee and the birth parent. But constellation has come about in recent years where people are describing all of the players in adoption, such as extended family members or adoption workers. It's the constellation of your story. And I like that because it's a whole, right? It just Mm -hmm. kind of brings everybody in to help us understand the entire story. And I know that you're passionate about that as an adoptee. You're also a podcast host. What, What show do you have? It's called Dropping In, and it's on voiceamerica.com. Basically, it's stories about identity, people who are searching for themselves. And of course, adoptees rank among the most, um, I'd say, visible, perhaps prioritized of all groups because they have fundamental, usually fundamental um, parts of that constellation are missing. So trying to make do with as much as we have at our disposal, sometimes it gets very creative, you know, making up um, who we are and rather inventing ourselves and declaring that we'll be this person going forward as we are missing information about who we were going in the past. I like that you said when we were pre-interviewing, you talked about being a hero, being a an adoptee hero, being the hero in your story and making it just so amazing from the perspective of you are so resilient as an adoptee. You've gone through these things that have developed parts of your personality that a lot of people don't get to go through. It was almost like you made the adoptee like more elite, really special. And I think often when you hear adoptee, people can often feel sorry or like, mm-hmm. ooh, like you have a disease, or I'm so sorry that happened. And although there is a lot of compassion 
towards the story. I like that you're coming from the perspective of look how far we've come. Look at what we've gone through and what amazing people are adoptees. It's true. It's really true. And I think that, you know, the idea of the resilience, you know, so much is made of the dysregulation of uh, the emotional system, you know, the amygdala and the sort of, you know, the surrender and its effects psychologically on a person, physiologically on a child. And yet it's not very well understood how strengthening uh, that can be because what happens is that adoptees, they're very typically um, extremely calm in a crisis. They have already realized uh, perhaps the worst kind of um, emotional crisis that there can be. So their systems tend to be, you know, if you read Nancy Verrier and the, and the primal wound. She she really talks about it in a kind of very uh, succinct, spot-on way. Our amygdalas are disrupted, but that that means that, you know, because there is a trauma that's happened, the separation um, from the mother, that the brain, there's a transfer from the logical left side of the brain to the emotional intuitive right side of the brain, which is also more creative. So when you meet um, an adoptee, there's a special kind of faculty where, yes, being a hero is quite a bit more uh, possible and, in fact, likely because of the fact that we have switched over to the creative, intuitive side of our brains. You'll often find an adoptee being the one who kind of is a glue, holds the family together in a certain way. Um, There's a lot of sense sometimes of selflessness, of being able to put others like, you know, for example, my mother, my father, my adoptive parents, um, whom I adored at one hand. On the other hand, they needed a lot of, um, they needed a lot of guidance. And I found that I was able to ameliorate you know, especially when we were in situations that uh, were challenging, even um, I write about this a lot on our boat when we would be in stormy seas and I'd be the one up on the flybridge, my father with the waves crashing over the top of the boat and, you know, holding on to the chart so that we could find the next buoy and the binoculars while we were in torrential rain. And I never remember being scared. I never remember even being nervous. I was very glad to have this kind of responsibility, but I also felt oddly well-suited to it. Um, My mother would be below decks nursing seasickness. Other guests on board would be hovering, you know, in the cabin. And I'd be up there on the flybridge in the storm, you know, with my father. And I always knew that there was some weirdness to that, but I couldn't put my finger on it until much later in life when I started reading about the heroic aspects of adoptees and orphans, you know, Harry Potter, Apollo, there's, you know, mythology is replete with stories of adoptees, um, orphans who are thrown, cast out and become much more resilient and courageous um, and leading from the heart than anyone else around them. Courage, of course, coming from the French word 
the core, the heart, they've switched from the logical thinking side to the courageous, intuitive side. Well, that's our interview. I just learned so much. (laughs) I could end right there. I think that's very encouraging. I think that often when we adopt as adoptive parents, we really want to tell everyone this child is adopted and they're great. They're perfect and they're doing great. And that really does negate the loss that you're talking about. It really does step over any grief that they may have about their situation. And that is very, very important to look at. But on the other side, what you're saying offers a lot of hope to families as well, that even through the grief and the acceptance of your story, you can still be resilient. You're using a different part of your brain. You can still be a hero. I mean, these are the things that make you who you are. And that's incredibly special. So embracing all of it, and you and I talked about the dichotomy of adoption, right? The grief, the joy, the thankfulness to your parents, but the you know inquiry about your biological family and how that all kind of comes together. It's the whole story, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really interesting too, April. There is a fearlessness. You know, There's a lot of, because we do focus on the negative and the checklist that you get, I think, as an adoptive parent, what to look out for, signs that your child may be, you know, depressed or feeling alienated or lonely. I mean, it does really overlook a lot of these um, magical uh, properties, magical traits, charms, um, and fearlessness is one of them. You, you, you'll notice it, you know, if you start to think about it, you'll, you'll notice it in an adoptive child. I remember when um, my biological father contacted me when I was 47 years old, out of the blue, I never hesitated for a moment. And people around me were like, what are you thinking? You know, he could be anybody. He could be, you know, all these things. I said, well, if that's the case, then we deal with it when we get there. Um, but for the moment, you know, I knew my own mind, I knew my own impulse. And I think there is a sense of, um, yeah, it might even go back to selflessness. In a way, you, you have nothing to lose, right? You've already lost everything uh, in a certain psychological way, even if it's beyond recollection. Hardly any of us remember um, the loss of, you know, of a parent in cognitive memory. It's really in, at a cellular level, right? But the body has absorbed this and the body knows you've come through it. You're here. You have lived through the worst and you're here. So there is a way in which an adoptee can tap into that, um, that sense of being stronger than others uh, in, just for the, for the very reason of their existence. Even though sometimes we question our existence, Um, You know, in reality, we're a lot further, we've endured a lot more right out of the starting gate. I love everything you're saying. I just feel so encouraged. But we want to get to your story because I really, really love your story as well. I think it's just so heartwarming, all the things that you found out about your life. Let's talk first. Why did your parents, your adoptive parents decide to adopt? Well, it was the 1950s and, you know, you had um, this picture-perfect family and there they were unable to conceive. So they um, 
they, I don't think they would have actually decided to adopt, but my mother's mother, her brother ran an orphanage in Germany. So what is the chances of that coincidence happening? Um, you know, there, were, there are so many times when I think I was born under a lucky star because then, in fact, my mother went through her mother's brother, her, her uncle, um, in order to find me in the orphanage. So that was already a pretty incredible set of circumstances. Um, but yeah, so I was lucky. Oh, that's so amazing. It's interesting to hear you as an adoptee say you were lucky because as an adoptive parent, when people come up to us and say, oh, your kids are so lucky, we don't like that. We're like, no, 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 don't say that. We're lucky. We want them to decide if they think they're lucky or blessed or chosen, but don't tell them how lucky they are to be in our family. I don't think any adoptee likes that, but it's funny to hear you come out on the other side and say, I was lucky. Yeah. You know, I think the thing is, you're absolutely right in your treatment of it, because there is that um, indebtedness that you're trying to avoid. The child isn't automatically lucky to be with you. Every child is entitled to have a parent. It's a natural born right. So, you know, to, to put a point on it and say, you are lucky, everybody knows at a primal level, that's not really quite true. But the thing is, and, and you don't, that's why you don't want to make a child feel indebted or feel somehow guilty. Um, and, and I think, you know, we've talked about the, that negativity that arrives because we still don't really understand why we were surrendered and so difficult to, to ever really fully grasp that. But I, I think that, you know, for me to say, I was lucky in hindsight and with the perspective of looking at others in the world, looking at life itself, its suffering, its challenges, I feel totally comfortable saying I was lucky. The more you talk to other adoptees, adoptive mothers, birth mothers, there's a lot of things that can go very wrong. And I think the fact that, you know, you come through it, you come through it with a family that's intact, that's loving, that's caring, that has all of this positive intentionality, and you just know you really are lucky. It was your grandma that brought you home, huh? It was. She flew over to Germany, and she brought me out of the orphanage, and she flew me back to Philadelphia, and she placed me in the arms of my mother. Are you close to your grandma, or were you close? Um, she was totally my angel, and I was joined at the hip with her for her entire 92 years. I mean, really a person that I um, looked up to and felt really just a kind of an undefinable bond with. I knew that without ever saying, you know, I saved you or, you know, I, I championed you, I knew that she was my champion. My grandmother made it seem like this was all very normal <laughs> and that she did nothing except for, you know, fly over there and pick me up and bring me home. And I was enormously grateful for that. How old were you? Uh, I was a year and a half old. So, um, you know, I was, you know, I was, I was a toddler and um, I was walking around in these little, in these like um, support shoes. So imagine a German orphanage, not really known for a lot of, you know, style or panache in the first place. And I had these high top 
brown corrective shoes on when I came to Philadelphia. And I remember my mother was just, she was appalled by this because (laughs) no cute baby shoes and that all had to go. Anyway, then I suffered from flat feet all all my life, but it was, you know, it was a lot of fun to, to learn about prettiness and things that I knew nothing about. And are you the only child that they had? I, I am. I am the only child. Um, whether I was such a handful that they said that's enough <laughs> or whether they just, you know, got perfection. With, no, know, they, they, let's they, just say they got perfection and they were just so happy. So you had a, a great upbringing. I, I did. I did. I, you know, I, I had cousins close by. So I mean, within walking distance so that, you know, in the neighborhood. And so even though I didn't have siblings or, you know, I mean, I, I had this sense of there being other kids um, and the neighborhood kids too, but, you know, they went into their own homes with us cousins. We could drop by for dinners and, you know, weekly, weekly Sunday dinners. And yeah, I felt, um, I, I, well, you're too kind. I mean, I, I gave my parents a run for their money. Believe me, I was not um, always what they expected me to be. And I think that that, that's a challenge that I think parents have gotten much better at. Maybe during the 1950s, there was a lot more conformity. Now there's a lot more individuality. Mm -hmm. And I sense very clearly that you embrace the individuality of, of your children and your kids. So, you know, I think we're just much more inclusive now than we were. Yes, absolutely. So did you know anything about your story growing up? I only knew that I came from the German orphanage because my grandmother was so proud. She would boast about it to anyone she met. And then at a certain point, my mother, I think she would wish that, you know, my grandmother would leave off with this story already. You know, like, (laughs) why did she have to tell? Because, you know, as you've, you've pointed out, I mean, I racially, ethnically, I could pass, right? Quote, unquote, pass. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt, um, and I most this, I think, a lot from my grandmother, I felt very proud of my very different ethnicity. Um, and my, my, my parents had a German, um, my mother had a German uh, heritage as well, but I was very proud that I was different. And I knew that I was different. I knew I was born in Stuttgart. And I wanted that to be a part of, I always held that very close close into my heart. I thought it was really essential to hold on to those tags that were uniquely mine. German, orphanage, child, you know, I I I felt that that was all very important. Even as my my parents started to want to kind of sanitize the whole thing. Let's talk about as you're older, you went to pursue finding out what happened in the orphanage. Yeah, well, you know, I, I was unsuccessful and it was a very short-lived project during the early 90s when the internet was sort of at its inception and it was still kind of a creepy place, a dark place, um, not, not as trustworthy, um, you know, information-wise uh, as now there are, I think, a lot more, you know, sourcing agencies and people that are legitimately trying to connect kids and families. Um, and so I gave up after about six months of futility in in my late, I would say that was my mid to late 30s. And then when I was 47, um, my, a letter from my biological father arrived. Uh, and it was just six months after my adoptive father had passed away. So I guess I wasn't meant to 
not have a father that year, 2002. Wow. And what did you find out? Well, that there was someone looking for me. And I, it was you know written by a social services agency, a very kind woman that I immediately got on the phone with because she wrote at the end, you know, if you if you don't want to have contact with this person, I'm like, no, 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 no. I was instantly, um, you know, compelled to want to know my story. So, so I called back and I had to prove myself with my birth date and knowing my biological mother's first name. And we went through a lot of rigmarole, but finally I met my biological father in the city where I live, New York City. He, he was from Zurich, Switzerland. So he flew over with his wife on an, uh, on an American trip. Um, and I met them in New York. And then, of course, I immediately started pelting him with questions about my biological mother, because as you say, I wanted to know what happened. How did I get into that German orphanage and what happened there? Um, then there wasn't a lot of information forthcoming. And I said, okay, well, then we've got to meet her. We've got to meet her family. And we did trace our steps back to my biological mother's family. Sadly, she uh, had was had deceased in 15 years or so before. So it wasn't like I missed her by just, you know, a hair's breath. I missed her by a lot. And um, there were times when I think I felt her presence. But ultimately, I did meet her remaining siblings. And and I did find out that my biological mother, age 20 when I was born, had taken a job in the orphanage in order to be with me um, so that we had that precious bond together, at least for the first months of my life. Wait a second. Why did she just not keep you? She really couldn't. Um, so my biological father had promised, I think, support. I think he had promised to introduce her and me, us, to his family. And then being 27-year-old male and and thinking better of it, he thought he would become, you know, condemned by his family for this. And he, I think, just decided to move on with his life. So he reneged on that promise to my mother, to me. And um, he did move on. And, and he basically left us with no alternative. I was still in the Kinderheim my mother went back to her family, her parents, and you know, subsequent to the war, there were a lot. There was a lot of starvation and poverty in Germany, and and her family, who had had eight children, just said, "No, we can't manage it. We're sorry." Um, and my my mother, I think, was incredibly. My biological mother was incredibly deflated by all of that. She'd fought so hard to keep me, and. Um, by the time it was, then I was over a year old. I was a year and some months old, um, and she had to surrender, sur uh, sign the surrender papers, um, oh which goodness. I have a copy of. Yeah. So she worked at the orphanage, so that she could be with you. She did, and I have a letter from her that she wrote to my biological father, saying I visit you know, with Petrolee, that was her nickname for me every day. And, and, you know, thank you for the toys that you've sent. And, um, I give her little kisses and she looks just like you, meaning my biological father, which is true. I'm an identical spitting image of him. Um, but it was so meaningful. I mean, that letter went lost. That letter was missing for, you know, 50 some odd years. And then it was turned up in the desk of one of my 
biological father's acquaintances, one of his paramours, actually, after my biological mother. And um, she had the goodness of heart to send it to me. And um, there I have it. It's pages long in my my mother's, my biological mother's own hand. And um, so, of course, it's in the safety deposit box at the bank. I can't even trust myself to keep it in the house because it's my most prized possession. Wow. How does that make you feel to know that your mother was with you and that she loved you and that she didn't want you to be adopted? You know, I think it made me feel wanted, even though my my adoptive parents were just so loving. There is always a nagging, creeping feeling that you were not wanted and you did something wrong to be unwanted. And as illogical as it is, and I, as I say, we've shifted now over from the logical side. We can't make logical sense out of this. So, you know, a child interprets things always that they are to blame as the child is the center of their universe. So how could it be somebody else's, you know, fault or not fault, but circumstances beyond their control? We all internalize it and we all take it into ourselves that it must be us. So when I found that out about my mother, and I felt so wanted. I also felt exonerated. I I also felt like maybe there wasn't something wrong with me. Maybe this just happened. Yeah, I would feel so many different things as well. And one of the things I feel, and I'm sure our listeners do too, is heartbreak for your biological mother. And it was mm-hmm. as it was meant to be. And I love that you say that. But going back to this woman who took a job to be with her baby. I mean, it's incredible on so many levels to show how much she loved you, but also what she gave you in the first year of your life is Mm -hmm. amazing because children who are loved, even by a caregiver or an orphanage worker or a foster care mom, they learn to love. They learn to receive love and give love. And that only helped your journey when you actually got to your parents in how you love them and they loved you. Absolutely. Um, and I had no way of knowing that. I mean, I really can remember going to my first year of college at um, Villanova University and taking a psychology class, you know, psychology 101, and this professor standing up there because all of this, you know, this was light years before I got this letter or made these discoveries. And I remember the professor just saying, you know, that first year of life is so critical. And if anything bad happens to you or you suffer a trauma or a separation, then you are like indelibly, he didn't say screwed up, but (laughs) he implied that. Mm -hmm. And I remember being in tears, burning my eyes, walking out of that classroom and just saying, I'm never coming back. And it it was decades before I could even open a psychology book or read anything because I was so scared that I'd been ruined by Mm -hmm. this occurrence. And you're absolutely right. And then of course, to start reading was a huge healing process. I later went back and got my master's in science in mental health counseling. So I, you know, I, I fully immersed myself in it eventually, but you know, maybe if you feel that you're permanently scarred, you would never go there. It's just too scary. If you learn that in fact you are all right. Um, And maybe that is just psychological. Maybe that is just a state of mind. Um, Certainly the goodwill and love of adoptive parents 
goes a long way in making you feel much more secure. Um, but I, I think about that going full circle and the healing never ends. I feel like I'm still mm-hmm. in the midst of it. Yeah, the adoption journey never ends. Once you choose to get on that path, it's just a lifelong commitment. I like the thing that you said about the red thread. Oh, yeah. So the red thread, its I can't take any credit for it. The red thread is actually the name of a book by Anne Hood. Um, and it's part of her memoir about adopting her daughter from China. Um, and that is a remarkable story. So the red thread is the Chinese belief that there is an invisible red thread that connects you to everyone that you are destined to know who has meaning to you in your life. So it would be your adoptive parent, um, your siblings, um, you're, you're all connected as a family with a red thread. And I believe that it's also visceral. I think that when you meet someone who's on your red thread, you know it in your gut you mm-hmm. it's palpable you know that you connect in your eyes you look in deeper into that person than you look into the next person you know there's a resonance there and you know it almost immediately mm-hmm. it is so true we talked about that when you met your father i talked about it when i met my father and the way he speaks to me is different than anyone else speaks to me. And partly because he's Native American. And so they really like to talk in um, just a different way. They use yes. a lot of animals, but it speaks deeply to me. I mean, I remember one time out of the blue, he called me and said, and I was going through a really hard time. He had no idea. And he said, you know, I know that you feel your wing is broken and it's hard oh. for you to try to fly with a broken wing but you need to heal that and you will fly again. And it was just so random, but that is how I think. I I could see it. It was so deeply touching to me. And he is somebody that did not raise me. You know, he came into my life later on and there was this connection. And I know that you felt that too. Talk about your father, your biological father, how he introduced you to your husband. Well, yeah, that was another kismet, right? Um, but I do want to pause on your uh, that that whole the whole um, you know indigenous tribe, the whole Native American, the whole First Peoples belief system that was so much bigger than three dimensions, uh, and and really very aware, self aware of instinct, intuition, and being able to communicate. Uh, without words. I, I think that that is so valuable um, and just something that's a huge gift. Um, my my biological father and I also had a very, you know, we did have a very strong uh, connection. Uh, he was Swiss, so that's a lot more, he was a lot more reserved, believe me. Um, but, you know, we did have a very, I would say, candid, very, um, um, open, kind of candid uh, relationship. We were very revealing with one another. Why not? After 47 years, you know, we've wasted enough time not knowing each other. You know, we might as well be full disclosure. And um, he had a friend. My father was a banker, a Swiss banker, and uh, he had a client friend in New York. She was a dress designer. And I was in New York in the art world. So this dress designer friend came to visit me at the gallery. And I 
walk down the stairs of this townhouse that it was housed in. And, and she said, stop, stop. There's no need for any DNA test. You are the spitting image of your father. She knew him then. I had not, not yet met him. And I got to the bottom step and she said, you know, are you single? I said, yes. She said, well, I've got someone I want to meet, introduce you to. And I said, well, that's a little crazy because I, I'm in the process of meeting my father for the first time. And like, it's enough already, <laughs> enough to process, enough with men. Um, nice, as, nice as he is, you know, I, it's just right now it's enough. She said, don't wait too long. This, this person is very handsome. And I know that you two will look good together. I'm like, I know you're a dress designer, but there are more important things than appearances. She said, no, no, no. You'll look really good together. So she persisted and we, um, I, I was introduced to my husband-to-be. There was an instant recognition with him as well. You know, the coup de foudre, the, you know, love at first sight. I believe that there was on both sides. Um, he being Swiss himself, he was part of the Swiss American society. He wouldn't admit it right away, but me being American, I was like, oh yeah, it's love at first sight. But <laughs> So you did look good together. She was right. <laughs> she was right. <laughs> it's so hard when somebody is right, you know, about something so superficial. But um, yeah, no, it's, it's here we are 17 years in. Thank you so much for coming on the show and telling your story. It's It's very encouraging. I think it helps a lot of adoptive parents, but also adoptees. I just recently interviewed, pre-interviewed an adoptee and he said, you know, adoptees hate people like you, right? And I was like, what do you mean people like me? And he's like, you know, adoptive parents, most adoptees just feel so angry that you are the hero in the story. And I had to agree and tell him, yes, I, I I have met several that do feel that way and feel that they didn't have a voice. That's why they're really angry is because when they grew up, they didn't have a voice. And now that they do, they really want to shout and let us know what we've done wrong. But that's what our show is about. It's about learning. It's about changing. It's about becoming better parents, doing better for adoption, helping our young people realize, like you said, their magical gifting, that they are in the right place at the right time. I say that to my children all the time. Some people don't like that. They're like, no, they really were supposed to be with their parents. Well, yes, yes. I believe in a perfect world. Absolutely. Children are supposed to be with the parents that are their biological parents, but we don't live in that perfect world. And there are children who need, and like you said, it is their right to have a parent. So even if it's not a biological one, but I have stepped in as the parent, they become my children. And when I teach them, you are in the right place at the right time. There is a great confidence that they have. If I was to tell them, you're in the wrong place, you're supposed to be with other people. You're, you're, they would constantly be thinking they're doing something wrong. Should they be over there? Should they? And so giving them the encouragement that, hey, I accept your story. I have adopted the whole entire story. And I want you to have room to grieve. But I also want you to know that you're in the right place to do that. And later on, I want to go on the adventure with you to, to find, like you said, those missing puzzle pieces. I'm in this with you. And that's kind of where adoption is going, where I hope it's going. And you on the show today have shown such grace and confidence in your story and who you are. And I think that it's a great example of just accepting 
being an adoptee and your adoption story. Well, thank you, April. It's really about self-acceptance. I really believe that. And, you know, the writer Ann Patchett always says, forgive yourself. Forgive every single thing in your past. And I really believe that if we're to have meaningful life, we have to forgive every single thing in everybody else's past as well. Because there's paralysis in anger. And it's all, it's intimidating to be vulnerable and to say, I understand you. I understand you other person who, whose role maybe I'm not supposed to forgive or I'm not supposed to acknowledge or feel compassion towards. But you know, when you do, the floodgates just open up in your heart and your heart becomes a bigger place. It's just really important what you said about removing self-doubt. So great. How can people get your book? Um, fixing the faith. So it's just coming out on audio. So that makes it a lot easier. It's on Amazon and it's available wherever books are sold. Barnes and Noble, Amazon, um, your favorite indie bookstore. Yeah. And I encourage people and thank you so much for having me on and, and for giving voice to, to all of us. It's so important, April. Thank you so much for joining us, Diane. And thank you for listening. If you have an adoption story you would like to share, please email us at afallon at adoptionnowpodcast.com. If you'd like to donate to Adoption Now, we are a nonprofit and you can donate through Facebook by clicking on the donate button. Thanks for joining us on your adoption show. See you next episode. <laughs>